are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our uh, preaching passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Should turn there. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the community of faith. I thank you, Father, for every man and woman, boy and girl in this room that you have set aside and called your people, specifically called your people at Emmanuel Church. And I thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to gather together the privilege that was bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. Be with us now, O God, as we look at your word. Open our eyes to the Holy Spirit to behold your glory in your word and change us, change our hearts, and renew us this morning in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So if you were, uh, if you were with us last week, um, last week, we uh, unpacked kind of Colossians 3 as we're continuing to work our way through this Reset Sermon Series, Colossians 3, really looking at the practical outworking of, of what gospel community is at Emmanuel Church, how that actually operates here in this local body, and the importance of that. And I'm thankful for Sarah and for Art and for Hannah. We did a little panel up here, and they helped us out and kind of shared their insight and Stories of ways the Lord has used their gospel communities to shape them and to mold them and to encourage them in the faith, to keep them in the faith. But I just can't emphasize enough, if you missed last week, I can't emphasize enough just the importance of getting connected to a GC at Emmanuel Church. I mean, that is the outworking, the arm of Emmanuel Church that is really seeking to be the hands and feet of Christ in our neighborhoods. And so if you're not connected to a GC, once again, we have handouts in the back as you leave with contact information based on where you live. They're geographic based. If there's not one where you live, let's have a conversation. Maybe we can start one where you live. Um, so um, grab that as you leave or it's on our website. You can find it there. So, um, but again, cannot overemphasize just the importance of being in intimate community with other believers on a weekly basis. So this week, uh, as we continue to trek along, we come to what was and probably is Uh, the most disrupted aspect of church life by way of the pandemic, and that is the worship gathering. 
you know, what's going on right here in this room, this, this right here, the gathering of believers in February of 2020 was just about as constant as the rising and the setting sun, right? I mean, every Sunday in churches across this country for the last 250 years, people met together until March of 2020 when it stopped. And I'm sure most of us remember where we were when COVID was first breaking out. We started to hear news of this virus. We didn't know, we didn't know a lot of it at the time about what it was, but things were just kind of getting canceled left and right. I remember um, on March 8th of 2020, I was teaching a new members class at Johnson Ferry, the church I was previously at. And the day before, Cobb County, where Johnson Ferry was, had just had their first case of COVID in the schools. And so um, it was a big deal. And I remember this couple came to class and they were really kind of concerned about it. And, and I literally told them, all right, this is, if you want to like let me go after this, that's fine. But I literally told them, Oh, I just think it's a super overblown, it's not going to be that big of a deal. That's what I told them, all right? And then the next week, literally everything is shut down, all right? Literally, everything shuts down. Um, churches across the world shut down. Communities that were flourishing are now in isolation apart from one another. And literally, the world will never be the same after March 2020. You know, Johnson Ferry, where I was, stayed shut down for about three months. We came back in, in mid-June of that year. Um, obviously, with all kinds of guidelines and restrictions on meeting together, as did you, um, had guidelines around that. But something interesting really began to happen as churches began to open up all over the country. Um, people didn't come back. In fact, there's still people that have yet to come back to the worship gathering because of the pandemic. You know, the worship gathering became something easily let go of easily traded for an extra hour of sleep or sitting in our PJs with a cup of coffee. You know, for many of us, the privilege of gathering with the redeemed was traded for something cheaper than what we gave up. And listen, I'm not just pointing fingers. I, uh, I myself, it was very nice those couple of months to wake up on a Sunday morning and not have to leave at 6 a.m. to set stuff up for church. It was nice to go for a walk with Riley, my only kid at the time. Um, Riley, now we have three. Um, pandemic. Uh, so uh, it was nice, um, nice going for a walk with, with Riley uh, that morning, you know, Sunday morning. Never been able to do that before. Before church started online, um, there was no rush. There was no hurry. My wife wasn't having to scramble to get kids ready for church or anything like that at all. But at the same time, as many of, of you probably experienced, as I experienced, there was a longing, just even in the midst of being apart from the body, to get back with our people, right? To hear songs sung, to hear prayers prayed, to hear sermons preached. And granted, it was behind a mask, and it was, it was different. It was weird for a little while. But physically being with the body was something taken for granted pre-2020, that I pray we never take for granted again. You know, COVID exposed us. Church, it exposed us. It exposed our true motives behind why we gather together in the first place. You see, for a long time, we made the gathering about us, how we could get charged up, whether or not we liked the songs, whether or not we liked the sermon, our preferences, our desires, what we can get. 
with little to no regard for our fellow brother or sister in Christ. But Hebrews 10, our preaching passage for this morning, and not only reframes our hearts and minds around why the gathering exists, but it also unpacks the eternal gravity of failing to meet together, of withdrawing from the community of faith and seeking to walk the narrow road alone. You know, this command to, to not neglect meeting together, verse 24, maybe you've heard it before, verse 24 and 25, it, it sits in the context of a chapter in Hebrews that's concerned with people for professing Christ falling away from the faith. You know, oftentimes when these verses are preached, we fail to acknowledge the whole context of Hebrews 10, which gives very real, clear, poignant warnings against falling away completely from that which we say we believe. Not just falling away from church attendance, it's one thing, but falling away from the faith entirely. You know, it feels like almost every single week I hear a new story or a, a new account of some pastor or ministry leader or Christian brother and sister just walking away from the faith, just making a shipwreck of their faith. You know, podcasts are created to highlight these falls from grace. I've listened to many of those podcasts, as you maybe have as well. And as a fellow co-laborer of these pastors and as a fellow brother and sister of these men and women that are falling away from the faith, I've come to believe more than ever that the body of Christ, us, individuals, collectively in the local church, the body of Christ, we are more vital than ever in the sustainability of men and women in ministry and in the faith. That Christianity is not a pull-yourself-up-from-your-bootstraps type of faith and just keep going. No one's going to make it with that approach. But perseverance in the faith is a communal endeavor. You will not make it without the body reminding you of the gospel. The faithfulness of each one of us in the Christian life is married to the encouragement and exhortation we give to one another. And they're both sustained through difficult trying times in this life, which there are plenty of those. Now, one of God's primary means of grace in keeping us in the faith is the Spirit of God using us, keeping us engaged in the gathering. And as the Spirit of God is working in our hearts and making us more into the image of Christ, these disciplines like gathering together, praying, reading the Scriptures, these spiritual disciplines, they move from duty to delight. Your appetites change. Your desires change. You want the things of the Lord, and you want the people of the Lord. And Hebrews 10 teaches us just one, one main thing we're going to unpack together this morning. So if you're a note taker, this is the one main thing we're going to unpack for this morning. It's that we boldly participate in the gathering, for in it we bless God and build up one another. We boldly participate in the gathering, for in it, in the gathering, we bless God and build up one another. So let's take a dive into these six verses we just read. And let's just unpack this main thesis statement. And may God just get great glory in our listening of his word this morning. So the writer of Hebrews gives us four, four reminders this morning for times when we gather together. Four reminders for what we're doing right now. All right. First is this. When we gather, our confidence is in the work of Christ. When we gather, our confidence is in the work of Christ. 
This is the, uh, the foundation. It's the bedrock that allows us to meet together in the first place. It's the work of Jesus. We stand upon the work of Christ. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. All right, let's stop right there for just a second. That word therefore being there, right? It points our attention to what came before. You know, therefore is an adverb of consequence, right? You don't have a therefore unless something happened beforehand that then compels your action, right? Like, uh, I was running late for my haircut, therefore PJ canceled on me. You know, whatever. I, I don't know. There, therefore is a consequence of something that happened before it. You know, the old adage, like, if you see a therefore, ask, what is it there for? Um, that's, that's a good adage. It's cheesy, but it's good. It's good. It's an adverb of consequence. <clears throat> and the therefore here actually draws our attention back to the entirety of the previous nine and a half chapters of Hebrews. The previous nine and a half chapters have been establishing Jesus as the greater one. That Jesus is superior. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than all the priests that came before him. He is greater than all the sacrifices that were made before him. Everything that came before Jesus are merely shadows dwarfed in the glow of Christ's glory. That's what Hebrews has established. Jesus is greater. And because Jesus is greater... He has completely changed how we approach God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. You read that as an Old Testament believer. You read that sentence right there. And it sounds like an oxymoron. Confidence and entering holy places don't go hand in hand. Nobody just entered into the holy places. And even when someone authorized to enter in did so, I guarantee you confident was not the word they used to describe going into the holy places. The holy places are where the presence of God resided. That's what made it holy to begin with. God dwelled there. No Words more like fearful, trepid, timid. Those are probably words more fitting to describe entering the holy places in the Old Testament. But the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, by means of the work of Christ, you have free, confident access now into the dwelling place of God. And the writer of Hebrews summarizes in three points why we have confidence to enter the holy places. And here's the deal. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing. So the three reasons are these. One, he says, we have confidence for blood has been spilled for our salvation. Blood has been spilled for our salvation. Verse 19 again. Let's read it again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... So keep in mind, Jesus is greater, right? Jesus is greater. Hebrews has established that. So let me take you back for just a second to the system set up in the Old Testament. God's holy, right? God is holy. People are sinful, okay? Two things established in the Scriptures. God is holy. People are sinful. Sinfulness cannot dwell in the presence of holiness. But God desires to dwell with His people, right? But something has to be done. There's a problem there. There's a dilemma there because holiness and sinfulness cannot dwell hand in hand. So beginning with Aaron, Moses' brother, God set up a system of sacrifice where the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would enter into the holy places to mediate the sacrifice on behalf of the people. He would take two goats with him into the holy places. He would take one goat and he would slaughter that goat. He would take its blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, this symbolic place where the presence of the Lord resided. 
And the blood being spilled symbolized that atonement had been made. That blood had been shed to cover the people's sin. To cover over the wrath of God. And then he would take that second goat and he would lay his hands on the head of the second goat and symbolically place the sins of the people on the head of that second goat and he would send it off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. So you have the blood covering sin, atoning for sin, and then the sin removed from the people, symbolically. Blood had to be shed. Life had to be exchanged for another. You know, it's fascinating. If, if, if explorers and discoverers, I don't know if that's a word, but discoverers, regardless, when they go into new areas of the world throughout history and they've discovered new people groups that have been discovered, regardless of how civilized or uncivilized those people groups have been, they have always found some system of atonement and sacrifice in each of these people groups. And what that communicates to us is because each of us is made in God's image, from Birmingham, Alabama, all the way to the forest and the Amazon, because we're all made in God's image, there's an innate realization in us that there's a God and we've made him mad. And blood has to be spilled. Atonement has to be made. Sacrifice has to be instituted to cover over our sin and appease the gods. But the old system was not sufficient. It's not sufficient. It had to be repeated every single year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The blood would lose its effectiveness because what was being sacrificed in the stead of sinful humanity was not of the same kind. It was an animal being sacrificed on behalf of a person. Hebrews 10.4, a few verses earlier from our text for this morning, it established that the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to take away sins. No, we needed a sacrifice made like us in every way, yet without sin. Eternally effective blood. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, if you want to look at it, says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. The first objective reason you can approach God with confidence is because greater blood has been shed for you. It's a greater blood. Second, the curtain has been torn for our access. The curtain has been torn for our access. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Let's stop right there. Again, the author taking us back to the Old Testament, right? The holy places uh, are divided by a curtain, a veil. And this veil was there for the protection of the people. To again, give you a symbolic picture of the dividing line between holy and profane. That when you cross this line, you're on holy ground and you're at your own risk. And only one man, once a year, the high priest, as we've talked about before, could enter behind the veil to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But Jesus is greater, right? He's greater. He's even greater than the veil used to divide the holy from the profane. For Christ's body, the greater curtain, it says right here, has now been torn at the cross. It's been split 
in two by His broken flesh upon the tree. And people can now approach a holy God through Him. Think about when Christ on the cross lets out His final cry, right? It is finished. The text tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. There is now confident access for the people of God through the torn flesh of Jesus Christ, the greater curtain. And then third, not only has greater blood been spilled, a greater curtain been torn, but a greater priest has entered into the holy places. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest, great priest over the house of God, we've already established the high priest would mediate daily on behalf of the people. Especially on the Day of Atonement, he would come to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people's sin. But he could only approach the holy place, <coughs> excuse me, where the Ark of the Covenant resided to offer sacrifice after he himself had done washing after washing after washing and sacrifice for his own sin in a very prescribed way. You know, the high priest would actually practice this over and over leading up to the Day of Atonement so that he doesn't mess it up. And even after all the practice, tradition holds that in the hem of the garment of the high priest, they would tie bells. They would put a rope around his ankle just in case he goes into that Holy of Holies and he forgot to do something or he did something wrong and his sin wasn't covered and God struck him down in there. Nobody's going in to get him. <laughs> Who wants to go in there and get him? You pull him out with the rope by the ankle because holiness and sinfulness cannot cohabitate together. No, as high priest, you get in, you do your business, and you get out. You don't hang around in the Holy of Holies. But not Jesus. A few verses before our text in Hebrews 10, 12, it says that Jesus, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, by means of His greater blood, entering through a greater veil, namely His flesh, has come into the presence of a holy God as our high priest, offering Himself as the sacrifice. And when He finished His business in the holy places, He didn't leave. He sat down where He sits to this day mediating for us, pleading our cause at the right hand of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? What a privilege it is to enter into the holy places by way of Jesus. But what does all that have to do with the worship gathering? That's a legit question. I mean, why does the author of Hebrews choose to remind us of all these things in the context of talking about gathering as a corporate people? Well, I think it's for two reasons. I think one, the author's reminding us of uh, the great privilege we have as believers in approaching a holy God. And we got to remember, church, that the command in the Old Testament was stay away. And now because of Christ, the invitation is draw near. Christ died to secure for us the access into the presence of God that was never available to us before. And when we neglect the worship gathering, when we neglect meeting together, we are spurning that corporate access we now have by means of his blood. Christ died so that we could do what we're doing today. He died. May we not neglect 
the great gift He paid, the price He paid on the cross to gift us the privilege it is to gather together on a weekly basis. So that's the first reason. But secondly, I think the reality of our sin tends to rob us of the confidence we have in our approach to Christ. I mean, how often do we come into this room on a weekly basis with a sense of shame or a sense of guilt or a sense of unworthiness? Like anything but confidence. Because in our minds, God is so frustrated and disappointed with us and the decisions we have made that to approach Him in the corporate gathering is laughable. For how can He even be pleased with us? We look for our acceptance before God in our own performance rather than the finished work of Christ. So what happens when we feel those things, what happens is we start to withdraw. We start to pull away. We start to isolate ourselves and begin to attend less and less because our sense of acceptance in the body is directly tied to our sense of acceptance before God. And if God can't possibly be pleased with us, then how much more is the body disappointed with us? So you stay in your shame and you stay in your guilt and it drives you further and further down into isolation and despair. And the enemy is just having a field day with you. You don't belong there. The holy places, you kidding me right now? You serious right now? You think you deserve to draw near to God in the holy places? Look at what you've done. And everybody in that church knows it too. You better believe when you sing those songs, they're just thinking horrible things about you. They're wondering why you even chose to come this morning. And we believe that. The same enemy that enticed us to sin in the first place, promising that it would fulfill us in all these ways, once we act upon that, he turns right around and becomes our accuser. How could you do that? You are so foolish. An author of Hebrews here is saying to you, and he's saying to me, you need to shut that nonsense down. Better blood has been shed. A greater curtain has been torn. A greater priest has entered into God's presence on your behalf. Quit believing the lies and believe the truth. And I want to say this. I want to say this as delicately and truthfully as possible. When we listen to the accusations of the enemy and we pull away from this gathering, church, because we feel like we're inadequate to draw near to God, like our sin has somehow nullified the sacrifice of Christ. When we pull away, we're in essence telling Christ, your blood was good enough for them, but it's not good enough for me. Your suffering wasn't strong enough for my atonement. It was good enough for theirs, it's not good enough for mine. By not falling upon the grace of Christ and our approach to Christ, we're actually doing the reverse then we're cheapening the sacrifice of Christ even more. Now, when we gather together corporately, when we gather together corporately, church, we are falling upon the finished, objective work of Christ, regardless of what you bring through those doors. 
that his work has provided the foundation and the basis that you cannot nullify. So we confidently approach the holy places, confidently, boldly approach the throne of Christ together as his body. So after the author establishes this objective reality, undergirding our access to God, our freedom to enter the holy places, he then gives us three exhortations, three commands that drive our approach to God. Three commands. First, when we gather, our approach is propelled by joy. When we gather, our approach is propelled by joy. Verse 22. There are three let us's here, all right? Three let us's. First one is this, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of drawing near with a true heart, it's more than just approaching the Lord in sincerity. That's, that's true, that's it, but that's the low-hanging bar there, low-hanging fruit. Now, the phrase actually carries with it this idea of enthusiastic gladness when we come into the presence of God. And the primary reason for this enthusiastic gladness is that our whole person, our whole person has been cleansed and made new by the Spirit. Our conscience and our bodies have been cleansed and washed. This communicates that the Lord has brought renewal to every part of us, every single part. There's nothing the gospel has not touched. Joy, enthusiasm, gladness, eagerness. I mean, would you say that this describes your attitude when you think about participating in the worship gathering? Are you eager together with the body on a weekly basis? Is it something you look forward to? And once you're here, do you sing with joy like one who's been cleansed and renewed? Or if somebody were to watch you worship or watch your countenance as you approach the Lord, would it be rather hard for them, hard for them to believe that you actually believe what you're singing? You know, A.W. Tozer, <coughs> excuse me, he said, Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. Let us, let us, Emmanuel Church, let us draw near to God with joy and gladness in our hearts, for Christ has renewed us by the gospel. Second, when we gather, our hope is in the trustworthiness of Christ. Our hope is in the trustworthiness of Christ. Verse 23, let us, second let us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, in a world where values continually are shifting, something all right by our head right here. All right, just checking, make sure, make sure, you know, everything's all right. Um, In a a world where where values are continually shifting and uh, things are constantly changing, the goal line is always moving on us as to what we should accept or not accept. We're to hold fast our confession, the scriptures, what we believe about Christ. You know, we continue to meet together, church, because it's gradually going to become harder and harder to truly live life in our society as believers. 
you know, the growing pressures to succumb to the cultural moment, whatever that cultural moment is, they're becoming stronger and stronger. I mean, many of you feel that already in your workplaces or in your neighborhoods or even among your family members. You know, following Christ is very soon probably going to cost us jobs or promotions, relationships, status, funding in society. You know, I'm by no means an alarmist. It's not my nature, but I simply want to be as realistic as possible and prepare us as your pastor for growing cultural opposition to fidelity to the gospel. And we need one another during these times. We need each other. We gather together to remind ourselves of our confession. We sing the gospel to one another. We pray the gospel over one another. We submit to the word of God alongside one another every single week. We remind each other that we are not alone in this world. You may feel alone out there, but you're not alone in here. That there's a spiritual people seeking to glorify God by clinging to the gospel and its faithfulness. And our hope of endurance is rooted. Listen, our hope of endurance, of making it to the end, is not ultimately rooted in our faithfulness to Christ. It's His faithfulness to us. He's the one that carries us to the end. He's the one that gives us the desires to make it to the end. And He will be faithful to us, church. He will be faithful to us. So we gather together to remind one another that His Word and His character will never fail us. He is trustworthy, and he will carry us through this life. And then lastly, when we gather, our burden is for the people of God. Our burden is for the people of God. Verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. <coughs> Excuse me. This language of, of considering, let us consider, it implies then, it implies active creative thought. And that's a beautiful thing to think about, is it not? Being actively creative, creative and finding ways to love one another in the body of Christ. And this isn't just loving those in the body of Christ when they're doing things well. It also looks like patience and forgiveness when the ball's dropped. None of us are perfect people. None of us have arrived at some kind of spiritual plateau that makes us infallible. We're going to mess up. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to fail. We must be patient with each other's weaknesses. We must be quick to forgive others when they sin because everyone is going to sin. And in the midst of our struggles and our failures, in the midst of all that, when we do drop the ball, we need to be there for one another during those times as well, praying for each other. Because the one who sinned is going to want to do nothing but withdraw, but we pursue. There's not a mutual withdrawing here. There's an active pursuit when the ball is dropped. When we meet together, how often, how often are you and I, how often are we thinking of encouraging somebody else? of stirring up somebody else's affections? How often are we thinking my presence here or my presence somewhere else has the potential to encourage or discourage somebody in the worship gathering? You know, honestly, if I'm being truly honest, every week that I come and I see your faithfulness here, 
I look out here and I see faces I've seen before. It's super encouraging to me. It stirs up my affections for Christ. I sit up front because I can hear you all sing behind me. If I sat in the back, I won't be able to hear anything. I sit up front so I can hear you sing because I love hearing you sing and remind me of the gospel because I need to be reminded of it as we all do every single week. It brings me great joy. We don't neglect meeting together, church, for reminding ourselves of the gospel and the gathering stirs up a greater love we have for one another every other day of the week. How are we creatively loving one another, church? How are we provoking, for lack of a better word, how are we provoking one another to love and good works? I think about so many of you letting other people's kids sit with you during the worship gathering so that parents can pay attention, focus in, That's creatively loving people in the body of Christ. I think about countless meal trains that have been started for families having new babies all over this church, even like two this last week. Uh, It's crazy. We are multiplying, church. Um, That's creatively loving people. It's caring for people in the body. I think about Hunter Spey, married, four kids, full-time job, using his spare time to roast coffee for us, to brew in the back, so that you and I, can have joy in something as small as a good cup of coffee on a Sunday morning. That's creatively loving the body. For the day is drawing near, church, verse 25, the day is drawing near. Christ's return is soon. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 100 years from now. But we continue to meet together to remind ourselves of the gospel, to spur one another on in the faith. We keep our eyes collectively fixed on the sky and our hands collectively working at the plow. And we need to spur one another on, church, for this world is difficult and full of trouble. And when times get hard, when times get hard and you come into this space, it might even be this morning, you come into this space and you sit down so beat down and tired and downtrodden, you don't think you can sing a word of any song or pray a word of any prayer. Your soul is so downcast. You think about, you just resonate with the song, Out of the depths I cry to you, from darkest places I will call. Incline your ear to me anew and hear my cry for mercy, Lord. You hear that and you're like, yeah, that's me. That's me. Hear me, oh God. Please hear the cry of my soul because I'm not sure another word can come out of my mouth. Hear the cry of my soul. And when you don't think you can sing another word, you slowly start to hear the sound of the people of God wash over you. And they sing, were you to count my sinful ways? How could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. So put your hope in God alone. Take courage in his power to save. Completely and forever won by Christ emerging from the grave. His steadfast love has made a way, and God himself has paid the price that all who trust in him today find healing and a sacrifice. You could not utter those words walking through that door, but by the end, your soul is stirred up because the people of God had finished the song for you. They finished the song for you. You can't finish songs for others when you're watching from home. That's why, that's why you're needed in this gathering, Emmanuel Church. May we show up, may we be a body who finishes songs for one another. Let's pray together.
Father, you have told us that this life would be hard. Told us that this world is full of trouble. But Jesus, you looked at these scared disciples in John 14 and you told them to have hope for you've overcome the world. Father, this world is full of trouble and this world is full of pain and this world is full of heartache. Be fools to deny the reality of that. But this world is also full of saints. And these saints have mouths. And these saints have bodies. And you've given us to one another. Out of your grace, you've given us to one another. Because you're kind to us. May we, oh God, may we as your people be for one another. May every decision we make in this church body be with our mind towards the other, not ourselves. For Christ, that is the mind that you possessed. When you fixed your eyes on the cross, your mind was fixated on the glory of God and the good of your people. And if you, O Christ, can humble yourself to a cross, how much more should we as your people seek to walk with each other through this life? May we not neglect such a great gift, O God. We love you, Lord. Pray to you in Christ's name. Amen. Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.